Hi everyone, welcome back to Biocast. We're your hosts, Parth and Chinmay, and today we're going to be talking about science communication and its importance in current times. Joining us is Dr. Ariana Ely, a former teacher of ours and current professor at Elon University. Hi guys, nice to be here and chatting with you all about SciComm and how it's important. Yeah, so just a general question to start it off. Um, what got you interested in science communication in general? So the thing that got me interested in science communication really came from uh, when I came to grad school. Um, I grew up in a pretty small town uh, in Florida. There was a ranch that still like herded, you know, horse or cattle on horseback. Um, and I spent a ton of time outside with my siblings when we were kids. And so in making the choice to come to Duke for my PhD, I noticed in sitting through seminars time and time again that the audience that scientific talks are geared towards just makes because it's geared towards this really high level of other you know peers or colleagues that are in your specific research field it's not really geared towards anybody else outside of that bubble understanding it so that information ends up not being accessible and i wanted to ensure that if this research that scientists are working so hard on is important and has an impact on the you know world around them that that information is actually able to be understood by anybody that might need to know that and so through kind of a combination of happenstance and hobbies i got opportunities to start kind of digging into science communication more and then teaching some scientific science communication courses uh, using kind of improv as a medium to help scientists share the work that they do that's awesome um i guess kind of kind of jumping right into the thick of it like um you you know you you noticed all of these different things about SciComm and how how people that were presenting and stuff weren't scientists themselves but um if if you had the power to change one thing about science communications what would you change Ooh, that's such a good question. What would I change if I had the power to change anything about SciComm? I, I think the main thing that I would gear towards is ensuring that from an early level, like when you're a science major in undergrad, that SciComm training or a class that is offered to give students the basics in good, not just science communication, but like science stewardship, right? Because for anybody who is going on into some kind of specialty, whether it's, you know, scientific research, medicine, um, even kind of outside the STEM fields, um, if we're, you know, looking at lawyers or we can you know throw engineers in there as well you get such this specialized language that you are steeped in day in and day out and you get so used to communicating and even when you're presenting to other students or your professors you get brownie points for using the language because you're immersing yourself in this field and so we don't really spend a lot of time actually teaching students who are starting in the sciences that it's not enough to know the specific language for your field you also have to know how to translate it to any audience that might need to know it and so that would be the main thing that I would kind of 
change is to ensure that we're kind of putting uh, value on students, not just learning the new language, but also learning how do I translate this and make this something that anybody, like if I, you know, am chatting with the cashier at the grocery store and they ask me what I do, that I can share this in a way that like, it makes sense to them if they're not an expert in the same exact field as I am. Um, because right now we have a lot of value on getting immersed in the language, using the language properly, learning kind of these esoteric means of communication like scientific writing, for example. Uh, and then science communication is kind of happening in this other sphere, in this other bubble, and the two things don't necessarily communicate huh, with um, one another. So that would be the yeah. thing I would, would go after. Yeah, yeah, very Absolutely. interesting that you bring that up. Like, um, when I was starting to read research articles, like just getting, like starting around junior year of high school, getting into the world of biology, um, it was really hard to really dissect research articles and like actually understand what they're doing and it just all ends up like in your head ends up colliding into some scientific mumble jumble that doesn't really mean anything like solid and do doesn't really leave you with many takeaways so I guess a follow-up question to that so when you're talking about like really communicating um, these complex like frankly complex scientific findings to the general public do you think that role should be done by scientists themselves that are accustomed to reading and writing um in in such a like a scientific format or should it be done by a mediator some somebody else like, what's your take on that yeah, that's an excellent question. Who should kind of be in the role of communicating science to uh, the public? And I think one, scientific journalists, like their their job, their role is to be that kind of medium, that in-between that has a foot in both worlds. They understand how to ensure that the things that are being produced from a journalistic standpoint is appropriate for a certain audience, is timed properly with a news cycle, um, and is going to get traction in the particular spheres for the audience audiences they want to connect with. And they also have kind of oftentimes now scientific backgrounds of different kinds that they're bringing to the table so they can translate um, that information. And so I don't think it's a necessity for scientists to do the entirety of science communication. I do think that if scientists know how to do science communication well, they can then help scientific journalists do their job even better because when they're communicating with that journalist, they are communicating to the best of their possibilities. And so that allows the journalist to ask more interesting questions as opposed to just clarifying questions, for example. Um, and so it makes that aspect of translating a, a little less difficult for the scientific journalists that are doing it. And I do think that there is space for scientists to be communicating their own work to different audiences. Um, so for example, I did my postdoc with Duke's Initiative for Science and Society, and we were working on a research network looking at PFAS contamination in North Carolina. So these, you know, forever chemicals that are produced as a byproduct in lots of different manufacturing processes. Um, and so we had a lot of different opportunities for our scientists to be talking to the communities that were impacted because a you know, core component of that project was testing water from all across the state to tell these communities how much of these chemicals was in their water. And so the scientists always wanted to talk about one thing, but the people who are impacted really just wanted to know, is it safe for me to drink 
the water that is running through my house? Is it safe for my kids to brush their teeth with this water? And so a lot of our work uh, on the risk communication team was working with these scientists to help them be able to actually connect with and talk to those individuals who had very specific questions they wanted answered. And so as the science communicators, we were kind of bridging between the community and the scientists who were part of the project. So I think scientists don't have to do all the communicating, but if they're trained to do science communication, they can step in where necessary and where their authority is needed. And they can help those doing science communication professionally do their jobs even better. So just to clarify a little, um, so you think it's like, crucial that scientists um like you know dumb it down so that the general public can like listen to what's important to them specifically as well so like key takeaways of their research really like really focusing on those um so do you think that would be like a part of that's necessary for science communication training Yes, and I would say so. I did a lot of work with Carl Bates, who is the head of research communications uh, at Duke through their comms office. And he always says it's not dumbing down, it's smartening up. And so as a, and this is what I tell scientists when I'm doing science communication trainings, you are the one who knows your science inside and out. And so it is your responsibility to unpackage it for any audience you're talking to. And if you are being smart about what you're communicating, then they're able to be engaged with what you're sharing and then use that knowledge in some way. Um, And so I do think there's a crucial role for scientists to be able to do that, to figure out what is the main thread that the general public um, or any specific audience, right? A community that's impacted by something needs to know from the work that I'm doing. So they don't have to sift through all of the different research or all the different angles that this I as a scientist am doing on this project, but maybe they only need to know one thread of the whole thing. As scientists, and if any of you, you know, go on to do um, research or even thinking, you know, uh particular avenues or fields of engineering or medicine you get into your specialty and you are thinking about it on multiple dimensions but maybe all of those threads aren't at a point where the general public needs to know about it yet or can do something with it yet but one of them is we like to talk about all the nitty-gritty details of all of our projects in some way and all the different angles that we're looking at stuff and so sometimes we can lose the main thing that we need to communicate to our audience because we want to talk about all of the other things we have going on and so I do think it's a necessity from a science communication perspective to get back to your question um, for scientists to be able to find that main point and be able to articulate it really strongly to any audience uh, they may be speaking to yeah that's awesome it's not it's not dumbing down it's smartening up that's a great catchphrase <laughs> and um, I guess just moving off of that, I think um, another really big thing about like smartening up, right, um, is that when scientists communicate to this this to the general public or like science community communicators try to communicate this, oftentimes what happens is a mistranslation, right? And then misinformation is huge in the science community, especially like we saw a lot of this very very recently with the COVID nineteen pandemic. So 
I mean, if you if you want to talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. So that's an excellent point about the fact that all these different layers of, you know, translation um, can lead to a spread of misinformation uh, because sometimes the details don't necessarily click or sometimes an analogy that is used isn't, you know, totally perfect or sometimes something isn't at a state where everybody can absorb that information. And so one of the, in, in thinking about misinformation, one of the main things that science communication research is kind of doing right now is trying to figure out what are the what are the barriers to comprehension for the general public when it comes to different contentious issues that are kind of facing uh, the populace overall. And what we're finding, right? So if you all were to kind of guess or think what what one factor do you think could either lead someone to believe or follow a scientific uh say precaution about something or go against a scientific precaution for something what demographic factor do you think might be the difference maker i want to say age i was going to say age as well um and i guess Maybe not a demographic, but it's just predisposition to beliefs, right? Um, like, based on what someone wants to believe, they're more likely to believe that as well. Yeah. So what we're finding is that one, it's not just one particular aspect of demographics. Different issues have different demographics that play into them. So uh, for example, if we are looking at vaccination and the you know scientific research that's behind the efficacy and safety of vaccinations, age plays a very particular role in that case because Older adults who were alive during, say, polio and saw it get wiped out through successful vaccination know that it works and knows that it, know that it's effective versus people who are younger and who didn't have that same experience then have different thoughts about vaccination. And so when it comes to kind of figuring out the best guards against misinformation, we're finding from a communication aspect that we have to be really attentive to the fact that it's multiple layers of somebody's identity combined with different psychological factors that are going to lead them into believing certain misinformation over others um, or over like the truth of the matter. Um, and so this is kind of the area where it gets to be a little bit difficult because if you're say, so like me, for example, right? My PhD was focused on plant biology and how they communicate with different microbes. That's a very different field than the social science aspect that now needs to be thought of when it comes to science communication to combat misinformation. And so it's a little bit impractical to ask scientists to now don a whole new specialty to be able to then go and communicate with the public. And so this is where kind of those that ability for collaboration and that ability to give scientists kind of toolkits to be able to communicate science to authorities that have that social sciences background and that journalistic background can help us in figuring out what's the best way for us to tell the story or share this scientific information so that we can be attentive to a group's age, a group's <coughs> religious beliefs, a group's political leanings, um, et cetera, so that we have the best chance of kind of combating any individual's want for leaning into misinformation. Um, 
And another thing that we have to be attentive to is how we go about addressing misinformation. And so there's a growing body of work that's looking at what are the kind of best myth busting, you know, air quotes, tactics that science communicators can use when there is misinformation already circulating out there so that we don't get things like um, the backfire effect where you, you know, step in, you tell somebody that they're wrong about something and then they just kind of double down on their own beliefs because they've become defensive as a consequence of you telling them that, you know, they're, you know, must not be smart because they don't understand this thing and they don't believe in science, et cetera etc etc um and so if we can find appropriate tools to use then that can help us combat misinformation too so there's growing work that's looking at how do we how do we address this kind of big growing issue and technological advancements definitely don't make that easier yeah yeah yeah, great point at the end there about technological advancements like i've noticed it myself in things like social media there's so much misinformation flying around there from stuff like covid remedies and like eating certain things will cure covid or prevent you from having covid that are just like so blatantly untrue but um a large portion of the public does actually believe these things and it's it's very dangerous you know so i want to piggyback off of that a little and just talk about what you think the role of social media has been and will be over time in science communication and if it's a positive and negative thing or positive or negative what what are your thoughts on that yeah that's a great question the role of of social media in psycom and busting misinformation i i think anymore it is a necessary tool just because so much communication happens on social media now um I think one of the difficulties is that with the advancements of algorithms, and I've noticed this on uh, Twitter since Elon Musk bought it and, you know, different people are running it, the algorithm has changed. And so the things that show up on my page when I open Twitter is vastly different now than it used to be beforehand. Um, And so it's like, I like one post and then that's all I'm seeing over and over again. And so it's very easy to get siloed on social media, which can then perpetuate misinformation circulating. Um, But I I think I kind of want to say that it's probably a net zero when it comes to science communication uh, and combating misinformation. I I think the positives are that uh, we do have scientists who are comfortable communicating science and have science communication backgrounds who feel good about being on different platforms to clear up aspects of misinformation. So uh, on TikTok, for example, there is a cosmetic chemist who anytime someone kind of comes out with, uh, you know, a TikTok influencer comes out with a statement about some uh, product and a chemical in it that's, you know, deeply negatively impactful, he will walk through the science for people to understand that, like, actually, this isn't what's going on. And so, yes, it might reach a select, you know, subset of the general audience who might be interested or hearing that misinformation, but there are scientists on these platforms that are doing that role of translating um, that work. And so I think things like that are a positive. 
additionally, there are scientists who are working on how do we parse the information that's being shared on social media so that we can track misinformation as it is being put out there. So can we look at all of these different social networks, all of these different websites and find kind of the core of this misinformation and do something about it? And so I think those kind of tracking technologies can be really helpful moving forward too in terms of combating um, misinformation. And then we start to see different features on apps now and we'll see how they kind of continue to work moving forward where either people can contribute additional information to something that's been posted, either clarifying positions that were taken, facts that were shared, pointing out that something that was shared was, you know, altered using uh, different types of either AI that's generative, etc. Um, or if something is fact, you know, factually not true. And so having those things on there too, I think can be really helpful, just guards against misinformation. Um, the negative kind of, you know, flip side of the coin of this is just how quickly that misinformation spreads. And, you know, the combination of it being shared on social media, how rapidly that can be shared, and how sometimes it takes a minute to actually be able to figure out where it's coming from and then figure out the best way to stop it. And so the rapidity of social media, I think ends up being one of the big um, negatives to it. So um, I was just, a friend of mine sent me an Atlantic article that was looking at social media and the impacts that it's had from like public discourse and politics. And so one of the recommendations that was in that article was something like moderating how we like the share functions on these different social media um, apps work so that like you can't just share it immediately. You have to like do something different. There's some additional barrier to just hitting that share button and then it being blasted to however many people are you know following you. So hopefully more precautions will help social media combat misinformation. Um, hopefully having scientists doing SciComm on social media apps will also help that. Um, but I think the ability of people to just kind of throw stuff out there makes it really hard to stop it kind of whole, whole hog. So yeah, that was a very oh, long. Yeah, no, no, we appreciate the insight. No, absolutely. I think um, another big thing about like social media misinformation and stuff is all the fear mongering. I think when you when you instill fear into someone um, that, you know, like if you don't, if you like start using nonstick pans or something, you're going to die instantly from all these forever chemicals that are entering your body or something. Right. And then people that believe that or people that even don't believe that, but still want to share it, um, you know, spread information, misinformation online. Uh, willingly they they're probably the biggest problems and then yeah I think um, piggybacking off of that you know the pros and cons of social media do you do you see like an alternative for social media in any form like do you do you think there are different ways we can communicate science to the general public or people that aren't really well versed in science without using social media yeah, that's a good question of whether or not there are alternatives. Uh, I, I think there, there used to be, but they are platforms that are used kind of less and less anymore. So things like um, the science section of a newspaper uh, or your like, you know, 
PBS used to have science shows on it. So public broadcasting, uh, public radio, and like these things have science sections on them, but sometimes they're either not accessible to the actual general public. So like I get New York Times through a university subscription. That's how I have access to it. Otherwise it's behind a paywall. And not to say, you know, having a conversation about paywalls is a, a whole additional thing because journalists need to be paid for the work that they do. Um, but because social media minus the ads that you kind of get bombarded with is free, I think that's why it has predominantly become this nexus for how communication takes place, regardless of whether it is um, something that is of, you know, relevance in your immediate friend circle or something that is taking place on the world stage, that information is coming to you through Instagram, Twitter, whatever social media app you happen to be on. And so I think the alternatives we have don't work as rapidly and aren't as easily accessible as social media, which is why it's become, which is why you see scientists doing communication or science journalists doing science communication have moved towards those platforms as opposed to away from them. And like, of course, there are scientists who are like, I want no part of this. Um, but there's also a good amount of scientists who know that that's where communication is happening. And so they know that they need to be prepared to um, communicate in some way, shape, or form on those platforms. And so I don't think that there are better, at least as of right now, I don't think that there are better options for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's, yeah, I, I completely agree with your point. Like, it's just the easiest way it seems like to get information out there, which is it's just so convenient. That's why it happens all the time. Um, Kind of reminds me of that. Oh, sorry. Didn't yeah, mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Kind of reminds me of that one quote where it's like, if something's free, right? If social media is free, then you are the product, right? You are what's what's being told this information, what's being displayed to the world, yes, essentially. exactly. Yeah. A little bit about, like, your own research. Um, just, like, what are you currently researching, if anything? And um, what steps are you taking to... Uh, mitigate the amount of misinformation that's happening or just like in general getting your research out there Um, I know you mentioned something about PFAS Uh, is it something like that yeah just to hear a little bit about that yeah so kind of taking stock of of where I am right now Um, I, I think the projects that I have been you know fortunate to work on through my PhD through my postdoc were really neat because they were public facing. So my PhD project was crowdfunded, right? So it was people out in the public who contributed money to this project that got the attention of a you know sequencing company that offered to do the heavy lifting of the sequencing stuff um, for my PhD project for us instead of us having to pay for it. And so doing that work, I you know we wanted to ensure that we were being available and communicating with the people who had brought attention to and contributed funds to that project. 
and then, like I, I said in my postdoc doing uh, the North Carolina PFAS testing network, that was like, a, there was immediacy to that. It was directly impacting communities in North Carolina. We were having, you know, meetings with the Department of Environmental Quality to talk about the results that were coming out of the studies while the study was ongoing. Um, and so it was really cool to have projects that had kind of that public facing presence and the necessity of good science communication and taking the role. So I, you know, taught at the North Carolina School of Science and Math for a couple of years, and I just started um, at Elon in their biology department. And so took a step back from doing specific research projects of my own. But a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is more geared towards finding good, active learning approaches for biology content, in particular cell and molecular biology learning, um, because that is so abstract, right? If we're talking about evolution and we're talking about animals, I can give you, you know, tactile things. I can give you skulls to look at. I can give you photographs of animals as they've changed over time. So we can look at tons of different examples, even kind of in our, you know, backyard, quote unquote. Um, but talking about stuff on the cell and molecular level becomes a little bit more difficult to kind of tactilely um, work your work your head around. And so what I am doing now is more so focused on what is happening in the classroom. And so when I think about science communication now, I am thinking about what do I what tools do I need to give the students that I am working with so that when they leave my classroom, regardless of what they're doing, if they need to communicate something from a very specialized or specific point of reference, they know how to do it well to any audience, even if they are outside that kind of specialized point of view, or if they're navigating kind of the social media space uh, or reading a scientific paper, what are the things they have to be able to do to parse that information appropriately, to draw good conclusions from it, and to evaluate it properly, and then make decisions on it well. And so what I'm doing now focuses mostly on how can I gift these students scientific literacy as they step out of my classroom? And so it, it looks a little bit different than what I you know, had been doing in my PhD and my postdoc. Um, but I think the value of it as particularly as we get more technological advancements is almost even more important. And so um, in thinking about science communication, I kind of am thinking about what are the things that I tell scientists about communicating science? But in addition to that, what are, so um, Parth, you mentioned before, you know, in the first go around of reading a scientific paper, right? If you have never read one before, it is absolute garble to you. And you have mm -hmm. to read it kind of a handful of times before you can understand what's happening there. And so can I work with students to be able to help them gain that skill set to know how to handle that on their own? But even before that step, can I help them figure out if I see something that comes across the news, right? And it could be um, one of the, you know, big things right now are the million and one different kind of health crazes or diets that exist out there, right? If one of those comes flying across any of your social media apps or the news at you, can you figure out whether or not that information is sound? And how do you find good information on that so that you can evaluate it on your own? And so it's a combination of teaching them how to actually 
evaluate the content that they're being fed, teaching them how to search for legitimate sources so that they can determine whether or not that content is actually saying something that makes sense. And then actually doing the process of, okay, these are their claims. This was the evidence. Does that evidence support the claims that were made? And now what do I do with this information? How do I make a decision on this information? Um, and so I'm really kind of focusing on what are classroom strategies I can use to get students doing that so that when they step into you know their world, when they're looking at stuff on social media, their first response isn't just to believe the thing that's being said out there by someone. Right. First response is, does it actually come together that way? And where can I figure out whether or not these things are are truthful or meaningful? Um, and so that's kind of what my work looks like at the at the moment. Right. That's that's awesome. Yeah. That's really really impactful, honestly. Um, so I guess uh, just going off of that with with your work, um, I guess uh, is there any new literature that has been like catching your eye lately, whether it's in SciComm or just in general with like something you're really excited about, you know? Yeah, that's an excellent question. New things that are are coming out. I I think um, one thing, and some of this work is. Uh, ongoing. So there's work that is looking at when you have someone that is holding on to kind of an extreme viewpoint, how you can get them to modulate and take a more moderate stance on that. So what are the kind of um, what are the tools that you as kind of the person who's standing in a either a position of like authority in regards to the view that they've taken on insert controversial topic here um, and a, a big thing that they have shown is rather than you saying, no, that's not how this thing works, you asking them questions to kind of fill in, okay, this was the conclusion that you've come to from this information. How did you get there? And when they kind of have to do it on their own and they kind of have to answer questions about it as opposed to just kind of arguing with you because you've told them that they're wrong. Um, some social science studies have shown that they actually start softening and adopting a more moderate viewpoint. And so we talked before about misinformation. And one of the things that we're seeing with misinformation is this uh, kind of extreme polarization and it doesn't really lead to good discourse or conversation of understanding where the other side is coming from. Uh, it gets to be very argumentative very quickly. And so if this is a way that we can start to kind of neutralize those extreme viewpoints, it could be really impactful for navigating some of those conversations. Um, additionally, so if we were having this, you know, conversation mm, five years ago, maybe, maybe even less than that, um, I could sit here and tell you that public trust in science was actually pretty good. And when it comes to the different public facing institutions that we had, that scientists were among the most trusted um, of the different institutions in the US. But now in this kind of post pandemic world that we're living in, we see that that, that robustness of trust in science that we had before is waning. And so, um, a, you know, one, if people in this world where misinformation gets thrown around quite a lot, 
aren't trusting in the scientific institution that we have that's supposed to be providing the truth to people so that we can make decisions about it in our lives, then what are the other mechanisms that we need to employ so that we can get them to be thinking about the things that they're believing about science and making good decisions in their day-to-day life? And so that's why the article that I mentioned before that's like if you ask them questions and ask them to explain their reasoning of how they get from point A to point B, it can soften their more extreme take on something. Um, Because then you don't have to worry about the authority or the lack of trust in authority that you want them to listen to because it's all kind of thinking on their part. So that's why I'm excited about that work. Yeah, yeah. I think with the rise of social media as well, that trust that you were mentioning like the lack of trust actually has been exacerbated like a lot because there's just so many opinions out there so many people giving um you know not factual information but just their opinions and asserting them strongly and it's in something like twitter where it's like a limited amount of characters it's easy to sound just as qualified as someone with a phd in in their subject even when they've studied it for their entire life have all the facts about it it's easy to just sound sound as scientific as qualified as them and then some some random person on the internet doesn't know what to believe yes um, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up uh the aspect of sounding just as confident as somebody who's like an expert in a field um and this is another um more more re- recent research um coming out in regards to trust in scientific communication. Uh, A study had a group of kids uh, observe either a scientific expert talking about something in their field or an actor that they brought in to play a scientific expert. The kids didn't know which was which. They had to write down who they thought was the actual expert in their field. Any guesses of who they chose, scientist or actor? Definitely actor. It might have just been (laughs) 50-50. Chose the actor. And the reason oh, wow. they chose the actor is because the actors spoke with much more confidence when they were faking their expertise. Mm-hmm. Because scientists have a tendency, right? We know that research is an ongoing process. And so when we talk about our fields, when we talk about the science that we're doing, we talk about it with all of the qualifications in mind, right? We came to this conclusion, but we still need to do these studies. We came to this conclusion, but this drug right now only works in mouse models, right? And so all of that qualifying, all of that waffling undermined the credibility of the actual expert to this group of kids who was observing. And so that notion of confidence, um, when you have that vibrato, that fake confidence, it actually sways people more than the you know expert that's gonna come in there with all the little nitpicky, teeny tiny detail things. Right, right. Just an interesting time to be observing all these different things happening. Definitely reminds me of that one movie. I think it's called uh, Catch Me If You Can. The <laughs> guy, he's just so confident in like everything that he does that he can just pass off as any job, and he just gets away with it. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. so, why like, con artists are, you know, good at what they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially with misinformation. Exactly. So, and especially, I can't remember which of you mentioned before that notion of fear mongering, right? 
if you have tapped into people's emotional response on this issue and you're providing them with an avenue of addressing that new fear that you've introduced, they are more quickly, and you're doing it with confidence, they are more quickly going to be behind what you are saying and by what you are saying than uh, someone who isn't giving them that remedy for the you know fear that they're now wrestling with brings you back to like ninth grade English, right? Ethos, pathos, logos. Exactly. Exactly. I think um, that's pretty much it for our questions. Um, do you have anything else you might want to share with the world? I don't know. Any last thoughts? Um, I think the main thing for, you know, folks in your audience who are listening, if you, you know, are in a scientific specialty or want to go into a scientific specialty, really think about what are the ways that you can start practicing and gaining skills in science communication now. Um, So like, you know, YouTube doing this podcast, like that's a really great practice of figuring out how to communicate science and lots of different types of science to different audiences. Um, But but yeah, it really is. I really appreciate it. (laughs) I'm the more just like with any skill right the more that you practice it the easier it's going to become and so for for listeners who are kind of in that camp my recommendation would be like don't don't be afraid of it just start practicing it now you don't have to go and be some you know super big psycom star where it gets to the point that people are going to start dissecting your life but if you're in a position where you are able to communicate to lots of different audiences. You never know when that's going to be useful, when a journalist is going to ask for your expert opinion on something and you're able to really digest it and communicate it and have that journalist ask you really good questions about the work that you're doing. Um, it, it makes a really big difference in that regard. Or even if you're just talking to you know, your family members, if they're non-science, you know, non-science people are, are in fields that are outside your area of expertise. Um, I, I think the other thing that we oftentimes do when we're in a particular field, we oftentimes will just speak with the same vocabulary to that we know from our field to anybody else, regardless of where they're at, right? So case in point, my sister, I love her dearly. She's an ER doctor and she's brilliant at what she does. And sometimes when we get to talking about our jobs, right, she will go into full doctor talk and I'm like, I might, I might be a doctor, but like plants and microbes, very different (laughs) than the human body. And so um, sometimes we forget that even when we're talking to people who are experts in different fields, that they are different fields. And so that again, gives you kind of more practice in figuring out how do I communicate this to somebody in a smart way to like acknowledge the fact that like, okay, you're an expert in something, but it's different than my expertise. So I still need to find some kind of middle ground. Um, And so definitely practice, practice communicating and developing skills in science communication. Be attentive to practicing it with different audiences from those who aren't experts to those who are experts in fields that are different than yours, especially because more and more now with the challenges that we're facing, we need collaboration between different disciplines to be able to solve kind of some of this stuff. Um, And then my last one would be just that reminder of being a good science steward. Um, And that doesn't mean that you're like responsible for everybody that you encounter understanding and making decisions through science. Uh, But knowing that like you have the capability of like answering questions for folks or like helping folks figure out like how to 
find good research on different things. Um, I, I think we neglect the fact that when we are scientists, we do need to be stewards of the like expertise that we have. And like, we've gained a really strong thing by having that scientific method as a thinking framework. Um, and gifting that to other people is a really, it's a way of empowering them to be able to learn things on their own um, and sifting through the big wide internet when you like are looking for something in particular is actually really difficult. Um, I was sitting in a, a student demo the other day and they were gearing this towards this demo towards fourth graders and they wanted them to look up all these terms on fossils and they were like it was like 25 terms and they were like i'm gonna set a timer for five minutes and you have to look up all five terms and some of the terms were things like molds or lucy which refers to a very particular you know fossil finding with no qualifications and i'm like if i just type in lucy into google and hit enter it gives me the movie with scarlett johansson i don't think that's what you want these important <laughs> talking about um and so thinking about the different ways that like how do we help other people have this mindset to be able to like sift through the information that we have at our fingertips? Um, yeah. That's one of the yeah. things that I wanted to say, but I could easily continue teasing apart these <laughs> different aspects. But I, I think it's really vital now that as scientists, you have the ability to communicate in any kind of specialty or area that you go into and for anybody to have the tools to be able to be scientifically literate, to do a good search on the internet, to find information, to evaluate claims that are being made from any anyone um, that you come across on any regular basis. Yeah, thank you so much for your in, your insight, your advice. Like like you said, we're we're running this podcast too, so we'll definitely uh, make sure to take your words into consideration and do our best to be good scientists as well. So yeah, um, for the audience, this was Dr. Ariana Ely once again, professor at Elon University. Um, thank you so much to her. Thank you all for listening and stay curious. Thank you, Dr. Ely. Thanks for having me, y'all. <laughs>